I want to greet you all in Jesus' name. Nathan introduced me as, uh, he didn't use the word prepared. Anyway, <laughs> prepared to preach this morning because there is a, there is an aspect about a sermon that it's never finished. Um, I didn't notice that. We go to farm market, three markets a week, and we take 17 big coolers. And they're big and they're heavy, big white coolers. And as many as six of them are full of ice. And the coolers that are full of ice weigh over 200 pounds, just kind of about devastating heavy. When they're empty, they weigh about 10 or 15 pounds. It's all the world of difference whether a cooler is full or empty. And the problem is you can't tell by looking at it whether it's full or empty. And if you ever wanted to see a a comical or even painful scene, you see somebody reaching down to grab a cooler they think is empty and standing up like it's nothing and it's going to come and it doesn't. And it either pulls you back down or it seems like it's going to pull your arm right out of the socket. Probably wonder what that story would have to do with a sermon about First Peter. But coming out of the book of Ephesians and going into the book of First Peter, I feel like we can make the mistake of distilling an epistle down to a few favorite verses or passages, simplifying some things and ignoring others, and end up mistaking a full cooler for an empty one. I've found in what work I've done in First Peter that First Peter, like Ephesians, is definitely a full cooler. The introduction here, the first two verses, include these seven words as characteristics for the people of God. Well, we can just blow through this real quick and say these two verses are just an introduction and kind of familiar words, they're kind of churchy words, and we'll just get on, get into the meat of things, get down to some of our favorite verses or the passages that kind of tickle us or give us warm fuzzies. But I think we're missing a blessing. I think we need to recognize with Paul, as he said to Timothy, that all Scripture is inspired of God and profitable for doctrine. Look for doctrine in all the nooks and crannies of this epistle. Anyway, I hope no one gets their arm pulled out of their socket with some of the weight of the doctrine and theology and practical things in First Peter. All right, the last message is a form of introduction I don't have time to review it, but I am going to name a few points from the first message as we started into 1 Peter. One thing we did is we expected that we're going to find three recurring themes throughout the book. Those themes are that this world is not our home, that suffering and affliction are the normal state for the child of God, and that the end of all things is at hand. Today's message is going to dwell a fair bit on this world is not our home. So you can be prepared for that. The last message also introduced a deeply flawed man in the person of Peter. We call him the Apostle Peter, but he wasn't always an apostle. He started out as a deeply flawed man, graduated to being a deeply flawed disciple, and then was amazingly transformed at Pentecost with the Spirit of God into the great Apostle Peter that we know. Pentecost, the arrival of the Holy Spirit, changed everything for him. And the man that is feeding us, teaching us, blessing us now in his writing is doing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. A weak man became a mighty Apostle of Christ. He lived in the power of the Spirit and he was powerfully used of God. So that's just great. We really appreciate Peter as a great apostle, but what about us? Peter wasn't the only one filled with the Spirit of God when that mighty rushing wind tore through Jerusalem. It says in Acts 2 that all the believers that had been gathered, all were filled with the Holy Ghost. They all received of that same powerful Spirit. This transformation by the Spirit of God was not some incredible thing on Pentecost, and today it's just a little bit whatever. I have the Spirit of God, I'm going to heaven. 
My life's kind of pathetic. I do the best I can. Things get rough. I look to the Spirit for power. That mighty rushing wind, that powerfully transforming Spirit, that powerfully being used by God, that Spirit dwells in every one of you that is a child of God. God does not give the Spirit by measure. John 3.34 God does not give the Spirit by degrees. He doesn't give us trickles and bits and snacks. And we beg for some more and He gives us a little more. He's not stingy. He's not a miser. We receive the Spirit in the same fashion as Apostle Peter. All right. That's my review of an introduction message that's been at least a month ago. This message, instead of focusing on the writer of the epistle, the Apostle Peter, I want to focus on the recipients of the letter. And I want to plug ourselves in as recipients of this letter. Because if we are not recipients of this letter, then the next 40 40 minutes, 45 minutes are going to be wasted. Because what we're talking about is just history. And people that lived 20 centuries ago, and what does that have to do with us? If we are not direct recipients of this letter, frankly, I'm not very interested in it. All right. If someone introduces you to me and says his name is Kinley, do you feel like you know me? Someone says he's from Juniata County. He's a dairy farmer. He goes to the farm market. Do you feel like you know me? Not very well. Well, we can take the introduction to this letter and consider the recipients of it and not know anything about them, or we can know a lot about them. In AD 64, the Apostle Peter was 64 years old. The Church of Jesus Christ was 31 years old. It seems that these churches that are mentioned in verse 1, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, it seems that these churches are also 31 years old. Three of these geographical areas are mentioned in uh, Acts 2 at the time of Pentecost. People from these areas were at Pentecost, and they repented and were saved and received the Spirit, same Spirit Peter received. 31-year-old church. I find it interesting. I don't know exactly how old this church is, but I think it's right about 31 years old. So we know this about the writer of the letter. We know this about the recipients of the letter. We know they're in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Don't really know much about them. But Peter goes on and tells us Seven very important things about who these people were, and I would say about who we are. I want to take a look at these today. I want to know not only what those people were, but who they were, how they were, what made them up. And I think we can learn something about ourselves. If you're taking notes, you probably already wrote these things down, these seven words. We'll do well to get through... uh, Three or four of them today. But these are what Peter tells us about the churches that he's writing to. Seven essential characteristics. Seven spiritual realities of these churches. Seven essential marks of the people of God. Seven defining characteristics. Even qualifying characteristics. That is, if you are a church of Jesus Christ, you profess to be and you are not these things, you are not a church. Professing is not possessing. All right, well, I'd like to start into some of these marks of the people of God. The first mark that Peter chooses to describe these churches that he's introducing us to is that they're strangers. They're strangers. If you flip a page to 1 Peter 2.9, we see a familiar verse. It was already read today, I think, in Sunday school. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It goes on to say a peculiar people. When I ask you, 
Consider yourselves today. Are you a peculiar people? That kind of begs the question, how peculiar ought we to be? I drove past some people on the way to church today that didn't look very much like many of you. Are we accomplishing this peculiarity? We're a peculiar people. How peculiar should we be? I'm not looking to answer that question, but just to think about nonconformity and being a distinct, different people and ask whether we possess that quality. How much of it should we strive for? Should we try to be different for the sake of being different? How peculiar ought we to be? In First Peter 1.1, 1, 1, last message used the text, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'd like to finish these two verses and then go on and talk about these characteristics of the people of God. Why don't we, as we're able to stand for the reading of the word of God? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Okay, thank you. You can be seated. All right, I want to think a little bit about strangers. I look around today, there's a few visitors. I'm not sure there's anyone I would just refer to as a stranger. What is a stranger? Apparently, strangers were scattered throughout Asia Minor, and that's who Peter's writing to. But what makes someone a stranger? Well, a couple of things about a stranger, in my opinion. First is, it's unmistakable. If you're a stranger to me, I'm not going to make a mistake. I can identify you as a stranger. I don't know you. You're a stranger. I'll also say that strangers know they are strangers. That is, someone who's a stranger to me understands and recognizes that they are a stranger. So they're identifiable as a stranger, and they also know themselves to be strangers. How is it with us? Are we comfortable with the role of being strangers in this world? How many of you would like to fit in, blend in, feel at home, and be comfortable in this world? I think you all know the right answer is no, not me. I don't want to fit in. I don't want to blend in. I don't want to be at home. I don't want to be comfortable. I understand that that I'm a stranger in this world. But I didn't say, what are you? I said, what do you want? Personally, I like to fit in. I like to be comfortable. I like to feel at home and blend in. But what if that's not our calling? Are we willing to subject ourselves to the role of strangers if that's what God has called us to? Has God called us to that? Right, this description of strangers, some other translations use different words. The King James translates this Greek word also as pilgrims. I think we think of pilgrims kind of like that Thanksgiving kind of a character with the black hat. And um, I was a little curious. I googled the word pilgrims and wrote down the definition that popped up. The very first definition said, Foreign travelers on a religious journey to a sacred place. That's not bad. (laughs) I was very surprised by that. That was just try it yourself. Google strangers definition and that's what comes up. Foreign travelers on a religious journey to a sacred place. Sojourners are foreign travelers. Another word that's used for this word is aliens. Something we hear in strangers and sojourners and pilgrims and aliens is an outerness, an outsideness, a otherness. The people of God. The amplified version uses the term strangers. Instead of saying strangers, it says exiles. So I'm not a huge fan of the amplified Bible. I don't use it a lot. Don't be offended. I don't have anything against it. I just... 
find it kind of clumsy, but a few times in this message I'm going to refer to it because I think it really captured the first two verses of the book of First Peter. For one thing, it translates strangers as exiles. Another translation translates it as expatriates. I think we know what an exile is. Somebody who's been discarded or left a particular people group. Expatriates is someone, a patriot is a countryman. An expatriate is somebody who's exited a country. We're, we're familiar with the word exit and we know that EX means out. And all these words are speaking of the outsider nature of the people of God. Here's another one. I was really hoping Jay would be here. Thank you for about maybe Mildred could help me. With this word, another translation that's not an English language translation. Stranger. Foreigner. Stranger. Ah, I just want to notice here, outsiders. We as a church, we use the word church, but actually that word speaks of us as outsiders. Ecclesia, the called ones that are called out. We're going to come to one of the words in this list of words. It says that we're elect. <coughs> elect is not just chosen. Chosen is actually not a good, a good translation for this word because we're not just chosen, we're chosen out. I spent a little time here talking about the outsider nature of the children of God. Because Peter saw fit right off the bat to refer to these churches as strangers, exiles, expatriates, extranjeros, foreigners. They are the ecclesia, the called out ones. They are eclectos. They are chosen or called, selected out. Right, I don't mean to make too much of this, but we need to emphasize the outerness of the people of God. Because I think that what we tend to do is underemphasize it. Because our eyes tell us there really isn't much difference between people. See a Christian? I don't know. Could be, kind of has a nice smile. He seems like he's happy. I heard him use the word bless. Uh, probably a Christian as far as I can tell. How comfortable are we with our outerness, with our otherness? Jesus said in John 17, interesting thing. He said, I am no more in the world, but they are in the world. Speaking of his people, the children of God. I, Jesus, am no more in the world, but they are in the world. And then he went on to repeat himself. He said the same thing twice in two verses. And it's kind of clumsy. The only reason I can think that he would say it twice in John 17, verse 14, and again, the identical words in John 17, verse 16, is he doesn't want us to miss it. It's important. So in verse 11, he says, I am no more in the world, but they are in the world. So we are in the world. In verse 14, he says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And in verse 16, again, identical words. I am not of the world. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. You know, when we think of Jesus and we think of his otherness and his outerness, the otherworldliness of the Lord Jesus, Jesus said that you all, children of God, are not of the world precisely as he is not of the world. You are as otherworldly as he is. The outerness and otherness of Jesus is yours. That isn't just my idea. Jesus said it, and he didn't just say it once. He said it twice. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. We're familiar with the expression that we are in the world and not of it. Well, this is where it comes from. It's gospel truth. Lips of Jesus. God's people are strangers. They are in the world. They are not of it. We sing this song. 
I kind of like this song. Not my favorite or second favorite, but it has a really good point here that fits with what I'm trying to make about God's people as strangers. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. This world is not my home. I can't feel at home in this world anymore. I not only don't feel at home in this world, I'm not capable of that feeling. And when I'm going through my everyday life, I'm not seeing work and day-to-day type things and activities. I see the doors of heaven open and angels beckoning me. And because of that, I cannot feel at home in the world anymore. That's a powerful expression. It's consistent with scripture. It's pretty easy to sing. It's kind of a catchy tune. Does that express your heart cry? It would be my position that that is the heart cry of a total stranger in the world. I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Are you standing against the pull of the world? We have an enemy of our soul, Satan, who would be very happy to pull us squarely into the world or even to pull us towards the world. I don't think he demands that we just plunge ourselves into the excesses and corruption of the world. I do think he's satisfied if he's making progress in moving us towards the world. I want you to picture yourself standing against the pull of the world and holding a rope. Satan and the demon horde on the other end of the rope. They're not preoccupied with family and work and money, relationship problems, work bees. They have one goal. And they are obsessed with it. And all of their powers are thrown into it. And that is to pull the people of God into the world and make them like the world and defeat their outsiderness. Okay, you're standing against the world. You have the rope. There's Satan. There's the demon horde. They're pulling. And you're standing. Who's going to win? I don't think it's enough to stand against the pull of the world. I think we better be pulling back. I think we ought to have as much a fixation on resisting the pull into the world as Satan has a fixation on dragging the people of God into the world. Are you pulling hard against the world? Are you satisfied to stand against the world? Or maybe we're satisfied to not even try. I would say if we're not trying, we're doomed. I think this is one reason why Peter gives this characteristic of the people of God the priority of coming first here. Above all, All those terms, if we're going to forget them all, let's hang on to. God's people are strangers. They are in the world, but not of the world. All right. That was a lot of preacher talk and not much uh, of the word of God. Why don't we turn to Hebrews chapter 13, thinking about this otherworldliness of God's people. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 10 says, We, God's people, have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. I want you to listen for the term without the camp three times in three verses and think about our outerness. I know that's not a very good word, but I can't think of a better one. Think about our role as strangers in this world. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For we have no... We have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. 
How is your outerness and your otherness as a child of God? Are you intentional about it? Are you careful with it? Is it evident to those around you? Turn back a page or two to Hebrews 11, verse 8. All right, these are the heroes of the faith. I don't know who doesn't love Hebrews chapter 11. It's one of my favorite chapters. God is commending these men and women for their faith. And he's also describing, the Hebrews writer is describing the outerness of these people. Verse 8, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whether he went. By faith, he sojourned, the word for pilgrim, the word for stranger, he sojourned in a land of promise, a strange country. Drop down to verse 13. Speaking of these men, this great cloud of witnesses that are commended and approved of God, these all died in faith, not having received these promises, but having seen them afar off, They were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Okay, this is talking about uh, Old Covenant, Old Testament prophets and patriarchs. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims. Abraham was not a stranger and pilgrim because he happened to leave his home and go to Canaan. He was a stranger and pilgrim in the earth. He had no home on the planet. He was looking for a city that had foundations whose builder and maker was God. Are we confessed strangers and pilgrims on the earth? All right. Satisfied. Can we let this go? Are you strangers in this world? A stranger's orientation is strange. All right, can I say that? That's what makes them a stranger. They're oriented to things that are unfamiliar to us. A stranger's orientation is strange. Hesitate to do this. I can hardly help myself. I'm looking for a likely victim. If you look at the youth boys row and say something like that, all of a sudden they're fascinated with their Bibles. No volunteers have to pick a a draftee. Christopher, would you help me with this? I would like you, you can set your sword down there. Turn around and sit on the bench back with your feet on the seat and face the rear of the auditorium. All right, are we all agreed that Christopher is a very strange person? He is strange this morning because his orientation is unexpected. It's unfamiliar. He is truly a stranger. He's strange because he's oriented a way that's distinct. We can see it. We all know it. And he knows it too. Is your pulse totally at rest, Christopher? Do you feel a little heat rising up the back of your neck? Where do you want to be right now more than anything? Right back in your seat, right? Conform to the rest of us. It is awkward to be a stranger. Nobody wants to be a stranger. Is Christopher being a good Christian right now? He's obeying me, okay. But I could be calling him to unrighteousness. All right, the question is, who is facing righteousness right now? If it's the rest of us, He's being a poor Christian. He's being different for the sake of being different. What is he accomplishing? Pointless, purposeless. Actually, it's upsetting and distressing. I don't imagine many of you are very comfortable having him sitting there looking at you. Wouldn't it be nice if he got back in his seat and blended in with the rest of us? The question is, which direction is righteousness? If we are facing unrighteousness, if we have worldly attitudes, and righteousness is that way, He's being a good Christian. And he's enduring the reproach of Christ as he does it. Obviously, visibly, uncomfortably, sacrificially, a stranger. But he's a testimony 
a powerful, visible testimony for righteousness. I think the danger and why I'm spending terrible amount of time of this sermon talking about our call to be strangers is because we have this tendency to minimize it. There's the spiritual realities, and that's one thing, but spiritual things have to get practical and visible and physical eventually. And I think we would all like to be comfortable and be at home and fit in and blend in. I know I would like to. But if I'm called to something different, how far am I willing to go with that? I think the tendency, if I just kept on preaching and left poor Christopher sit there, as the time ticked on, he would start to shift around a little. And he would wonder if I forgot him. And he might soon be kind of... I know by the time I 10, 15 minutes go by, he's back in that pew. And if I told him face to back, he's probably still trying to be minimally obedient. How much to the back do I have to look? And Brother Kinley will give me a break. I think we do that in our Christian lives. Here we're called to a radical discipleship that's visibly different. And it's embarrassing, frankly. We're total strangers. And we wonder, how close can we get to that pew seat and still honor Christ? Or even worse than that, just make it to heaven. Our tendency is to slip back into the seat, but keep our neck carefully craned toward righteousness. But then our neck gets stiff and it starts sliding around and Satan's got us pulled into the world enough. We're pretty comfortable and Sunday morning. Well, we'll we'll whip around for a couple hours and back to righteousness. But then through the week. Awful uncomfortable and embarrassing to sit on that pew. Thank you, Christopher. You can turn around and face unrighteousness like the rest of us. Sorry to put you on the spot. Thank you. All right. Are we strangers in the world? A stranger's life is visibly and strangely oriented different from the world. Muslims, you've probably seen them put their prayer blankets down. Do you know what they're doing? They're facing Mecca in Arabia. They are orienting themselves for prayer towards Mecca. Synagogues. We went and got some lights for our ice skating rink from a synagogue in Baltimore, I think. And when I got there, I thought Jake Fisher would really object to this building. Because I found out once that he despises a building that isn't level. It just isn't righteous. It isn't what it should be. Well, here's this synagogue, and it was on a street corner, and it was cocked about 20 degrees off of square with the street corner. We despise that. It's not right. It should be oriented right. Now, I'm not making an excuse for Judaism, but there's a reason for it. Every synagogue on the planet is oriented toward Jerusalem. When you sit and worship in a synagogue, you are facing Jerusalem wherever you are. I don't care where the street is. I don't care where the fence line is. The building is oriented and the worshipers are oriented towards Jerusalem. They're strangers. That is strange. But there's a purpose in the strangeness. If you see a worldly cemetery, that is a secular cemetery, place, whatever, whoever's buried, they're always oriented to the street. They're squared off. We look at our cemetery and you think, what in the world? Somebody could have cleaned up their act a little. It's, it's cocked. Our cemetery is out of square. It's, it can't be right. It isn't square with the road. It isn't square with the mountain. It isn't square with the building. It isn't square with the ball field. It's just kind of pathetic and embarrassing. It's just facing where? Nowhere. Turns out there's a purpose behind that. Go stand in that cemetery and face the direction that the stones face, and you'll see the sun will come up over the mountain right where you're facing. A Christian cemetery is oriented towards the rising sun, towards the east, anticipating, expecting the resurrection. Jesus coming in the clouds with great glory from the east. I think, if I have that right, a stranger's life is visibly oriented in a strange direction. For us, it should be towards the kingdom of God or the new Jerusalem, the people of God, obedience to Christ. These are all things that are as bizarre in the world as Christopher sitting backwards on that pew. They're uncomfortable. They're awkward. We do best when we sit right up straight and face righteousness. 
we do poorly when we peek over our shoulder. Or we look at the church down the street and say, well, they don't have to do this or they don't have to do that. Turns out it must be okay. A stranger's life is visibly oriented in a different direction. God's people are total strangers. I didn't give the title for the message. The title for the message was Peter, an epistle to total strangers. It would be my position that we underrate rather than overrate how strange we're to be. Now, again, I'm not saying strange for the sake of being strange, but strange because the demands of righteousness are bizarre in this world. We don't look to the world for cues about what's okay. We don't look at the world and say, well, everyone's facing this way. The word of God says face that way. Get up on the pew, sit up straight, and face righteousness if you're a stranger in the world. All right. That was a lot of ado about one word, but I think it was an important word. I think it was the first description of the recipients of this letter for a reason, because we are called to be strangers in the world, not of the world. The second mark here is scattered. I think I'll do well to get through this and then... I promise not to finish, but I do promise to sit down when I'm out of time. The second mark, children of God, let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. To the strangers scattered. Well, there it is. There's a word that isn't very pleasant to me, scattered. How many of you appreciate things that are scattered? I've been in a number of your homes. I find them to be startlingly ordered, impressively ordered. I'm not sure, coveting the, covet, covet earnestly the greater gifts. Coveting isn't necessarily a sin. I think I covet some of the order that I sometimes observe in your homes. I appreciate it. You come in my home occasionally, it's just very practical and things are scattered. We don't, we don't rejoice in scattering, right? Scattered. I'll tell you an example. This is my illustration of why scattering is a bad thing and not a good thing. So the strangers scattered throughout Asia Minor must be a bad thing. That's because if I come downstairs and it's still dark and I walk through my living room, which I have to to get to the light switch, and all of a sudden I'm in terrible agony because I'm stepping on 50,000 pieces of connects. Do we know what connects are? You old timers can call them Legos, but they're... They're updated Legos. And we don't just have a few, we have a lot. And when they're scattered on the floor and you step on them in the dark, it's awful, it hurts. Rebecca calls them foot mines. You're barefoot, you step on it, ouch, you're just about disabled from the pain. These things are scattered. Why is that a bad thing? It's bad because it's random. It's chaotic. It's purposeless. It's out of control, it's out of order, it's unplanned, unpleasant, and undesirable. Scattered is bad. Why are God's people scattered? Why can't we get our act together and get together and get stacked up and just be maybe a Christian nation? Why don't we just make America the place for Christians and we're all here and we're ordered and we're tidy and our lives are not scattered? I want to make a difference here. I guess I don't have the word on the board anymore, but I'm going to take the time and change it. The reason why we're uncomfortable with things that are scattered, that are purposeless, that are uh, formless and void, just a mess and unplanned, is because scattered is a negative word, and God's people being scattered. The problem is it's a bad translation. This is what it should say. Anybody's offended by that. I shouldn't say a bad translation. It's a weak translation. The more powerful word is dispersed. Now, I wasn't, to my shame, at the work bee on Saturday. I was at farm market. I understood there was a bunch of highly skilled carpenters there. And it was my impression from talking to Jacob that they didn't all stand in a pile and work on the same two-by-six. They spread out. But they weren't scattered. They had a purpose and a plan. They were trying to accomplish something. You can look outside and see the fruit of what they did. And it wasn't because they were scattered. It's because they were dispersed with a plan. There's a difference. This word comes from a Greek word, 
is why I think it's the best translation, diaspora. And that word comes from two words. Dia, we know what diameter means all the way across. Dia is speaking of everywhere. And spora, we know what a spore is. A spore is a seed. We, uh, someone said last week about the word sperm as seed. A spore as seed. It's saying seeded everywhere. The people of God are not scattered like connects on a dark living room floor. They are seeded everywhere. There's a purpose and a plan and it produces fruit. It's productive and it shows the sovereignty and power and genius of God that he's scattered his people the way he has and we're part of the fruit of that. God's people are dispersed. They are spread out of the plan. Probably wonder why I would make so much of that. The Amplified Version of this verse says Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, listen to this. To the elect exiles, we already talked about the outsidedness of the people of God, their exiles, outer. To the elect exiles of the dispersion, not scattered, by the winds of history, suffering the Jews and the persecutors and the Catholics and the Inquisition and have to run off to the new world. No, that's scattered. This is by the will of God as he spread his people. So, Apostle of Jesus Christ to the elect exiles of the dispersion, scattered and sowed abroad. That's beautiful. That's just what the Amplified says. It says that God's people are scattered and sowed abroad. We're here because God planted us here. I just find that fascinating. It is now God's plan, and it always has been, for his people to be dispersed, scattered and sowed abroad. That's a big statement. I think you can write it down because it's right out of the pages of Scripture. It is now God's plan and always has been, God's will, God's distinct pleasure, God's purpose to disperse, and so are brought his people. This letter is written to the dispersion scattered and sowed abroad. We're here for a reason. Turn to Genesis 1. I feel like I need to back up what I said, that it's always been God's plan to sow abroad his people. Dispersion is God's pleasure. It's his desire. Verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And immediately God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Well, replenish isn't a good word because it speaks of refilling and the earth had never been filled. Flow over the earth. Flood the earth is what would probably most accurately describe God's command to man. Right after he created in his image, he said, replenish, overflow, flood the earth, subdue it and have dominion. God's plan from the beginning, overflow the earth. Well, we know how things went. They went poorly. And soon every thought of man was wicked and evil all the time. God destroyed all land animals and men with the flood. And immediately, first command back to Noah, disperse, fill the earth. Chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and overflow and flood the earth. Replenish the earth. God's desire since the beginning of human history was for man to fill the earth. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Very familiar with the Great Commission. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. I don't mean to cut that off other than the fact that Jesus is leaving and his last command to his people is go into all nations. Fill the earth. Disperse. Don't stack up in one place. We just 
finished this spring reseeding about 20 acres. We had a pile of grass seed. It's terrible expensive. Grass seed is awful expensive. We had it on a pallet. You know that grass seed was very happy to be there on that pallet. All stacked up, comfortable, warm, dry, blending in. That grass seed, if it had his pick, would have stayed there forever and accomplished nothing. Been a tremendous waste of the fortune that the farmer spent to purchase it. Here's this pallet of grass seed. What did we end up doing? We dispersed it. We sowed it abroad. We scattered it. You know, the spirit of Satan would have, if you can picture this as being the people of God, would be glad if that grass seed would stay in one pile. Happy, yes, but fruitful, no. Satan would be happy if God's people would stack up in this valley till it's Mennonites to the top of the mountains. That would satisfy Satan's purposes. Yes, we'd have a pretty good stronghold here in the valley, but no effect beyond it. Go back to the analogy of reseeding the pasture. That seed had to get scattered out, unfamiliar, uncomfortable, competing with weeds. But if it hadn't gone and done that, the weeds would have taken over and the object of the farmer would have been thwarted. Turn to Acts 8. In Acts 8, we read about a real tragedy in the church. That is, in Acts 7, we read about the uh, martyr of Stephen, martyrdom of Stephen. And then in Acts 8, what happens right away? Surely the forces of darkness and Satan and his demon hordes are winning the battle against this new church. Because listen, what happened? Acts 8, verse 1, Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. At that time, there was great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered, diaspora, seated abroad. Drop down to verse 4. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad, diaspora, went everywhere preaching the word. Here's my question. Who scattered the church? Was it the Jews, the persecutors? Satan, taking a swipe at the church, I think it was. But I think he was accomplishing God's purposes when he did it. He didn't scatter the church. He seeded it abroad without meaning to by persecuting the children of God. All right. Shade Mountain has been is planning a church plant and an outreach. How do we feel about that? Does it make any of you squirm? Uncomfortable? Sounds costly? Pop up in a new area, doesn't even know what a Mennonite is? I don't really want to be Christopher sitting up there facing backwards all by myself. I'd rather in, blend in with all of you and be comfortable. What is God's purpose and plan here? Are we hungering for what God is hungering? He would like us to spread, be seated abroad. In World War II on D-Day, 150,000 Allied troops landed on the beaches of Normandy, 150 people. They were stacked up to the tops of the mountain. Once they got there and established that beachhead, they paid a terrible price to get that beachhead, but that was not the purpose of why they were there. As soon as they had any security on that beachhead, they rolled out across the continent and accomplished the reason they were there. I would like to submit that 30 years ago, Shade Mountain came not to stack this valley full of Mennonites, but to establish a beachhead and participate in God's plan of replenishing the earth, of going to all nations, or maybe it's all counties and just over the next ridge, but not stacking up in one place, warm and dry and safe on a pallet like grass seed in the shop. If we resist God's will to disperse his people, he will accomplish his will with us or without us, but we will not inherit a blessing but a curse. We'll share the fate of the Israelites who forgot that they were to be a blessing to all nations. They kept that blessing for themselves. They turned their attentions and their love and their affections inward and they stayed stacked up on that pallet full of grass seed. And God took away their nation from them. 
And in my understanding, they're no longer the children of God. And if we think that that can't happen here, I think we should let him that thinketh he stand take heed lest he fall. Close with Genesis 11. Thinking about what the curse of refusing to be dispersed according to God's plan. Familiar story. I think it's a warning for us today. The whole earth was of one language and of one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Sounds to me like the whole earth of one language and one speech of a culture that's so comfortable with itself it just wants to stay together. Two chapters earlier, God had said to Noah and his sons, replenish the earth, and here's man selfishly staying where he's comfortable. I don't want to be a stranger. They said to one another, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and slime for mortar, and they said, let us build a city and a tower that the top may reach to heaven. Let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad on the whole face of the earth. They resisted God's plan to sow abroad his people. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one. They have one language. This they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they've imagined to do. Let us go down and confound their language so they don't understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad. They tried to resist being scattered and ended up scattered anyway, but they were scattered unto a curse, not a blessing. I would suggest we consider the marks of the people of God, first, that they're strangers in the world, but radically not of the world, and also that we are to be a dispersed people, that is, hungry, looking to be seated abroad and recognizing that we accomplish Satan's plan and not God's when we turn our attentions inward and resist God's purposes. Now, I'm not saying we don't need to build strong churches and families and brotherhoods. For sure not saying that we should scatter as a brotherhood to the four winds and a bunch of tumbleweeds out running around individually handing out tracts or something. That has nothing to do. Um, In my mind, anything that breaks down the brotherhood is working against God's purposes. But a brotherhood that sees itself as generation after generation, more and more established, deeper and deeper roots, I think is working against the purposes of God. I think we should cultivate the attitude of a stranger and the heart of someone that yearns